My guest today, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, is the host of the wildly popular podcast, Therapy for Black Girls. She grew up in a small town in the South. She described it as being so small that uh, they didn't have a stoplight, they had a flashing light, and you would give directions by counting telephone poles to her dad's photography studio. And she had at the earliest age a deep devotion and interest in learning and teaching, which evolved into a fascination with psychology and eventually mental health services. From there, as she was pursuing her PhD, she also became really interested in how people from different backgrounds, different races, experienced the world of mental health, mental health services, and psychology, and decided to make it her mission to expand access and to expand availability and really expand the conversation around mental health and psychology, which led to her clinical practice and then eventually her podcast. So excited to dive into this conversation today. I'm Jonathan Fields. And this is Good Life Project. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Good Life Project is sponsored by LinkedIn Ads. So as a business-to-business marketer, your needs are unique. B2B buying cycles are long and your customers face incredibly complex decisions. So isn't it time you had a marketing platform built specifically for you? LinkedIn Ads empowers marketers with solutions tailored for B2B. Imagine having direct access to a billion professionals, including 180 million senior executives and 10 million C-level leaders with LinkedIn's powerful targeting tools built for B2B, you can drive serious results. LinkedIn ads generated two to five times higher return on ad spend than other social platforms in the technology space. We've actually tapped the power of LinkedIn ads a number of times ourselves, and the campaigns have been really successful. If you're ready to revolutionize your B2B marketing, try LinkedIn ads with a $100 credit on your next campaign. Terms and conditions apply. Go to linkedin.com slash goodlifeproject to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash goodlifeproject, or just click the link in the show notes. Terms and conditions apply. You grew up, from what I know, in a pretty tiny town in Louisiana. Yes, Tell me very about small that. town. <laughs> So the name of the town is Payne Courtville, which means short of bread town. Um, so apparently years and years ago, there used to be a truck that delivered bread and it would always run out before it got to my little town. It so literally translates to short of bread <laughs> That's town. the French translation <laughs> is short of bread town. That is awesome. <laughs> yeah, so thankfully we can just go to the grocery store now, but that's the literal translation. Yeah, so there is not even a like stoplight. It's only a caution light. Um, we used to, my, so my dad is a photographer and we had a home studio where he would take pictures. And so the way we would give directions is that it is 13 light poles down from the Catholic church. So that is how people would find the studio. So very small. You got to like give directions in Landmark. Got it. I mean, what, I, I have no sense of even what it would be like. What, you know, I mean, to me, it feels like, cause I grew up just outside of New York city and I've been in New oh. York city for basically my entire adult life. Yes. Growing up in a place that small, what's it like? I mean, what are the what do you love about something like that? What do you, what kind of starts to not be mm-hmm. <laughs> so cool? Yeah, so I think the thing that I love most and least is that like you know everybody and everybody yeah. knows you. Um, so I remember when I was younger, like it would used to it would frustrate me. Like we could not even go to the store without my dad like stopping to talk to somebody because everybody of course knows you and they want to catch up, right? Um, but I think the thing that I love about that is that everybody knows you and so mm-hmm. they want to know like how's school going and like what's going on. So there's constant like checking in with you, which made I think me feel very 
like taken care of and like people really were concerned about me and my family. Yeah. What so if with your dad being a photographer, um, it sounds like you were also exposed to like the idea of living the artistic life pretty early on too. <laughs> I would not have connected that until this moment. Yeah. But I was, you know, spending time in the dark room with him oh, and no yeah, because he would develop uh the black and white pictures at mm-hmm. home. Um so I would spend time in the dark room and with him, but I wouldn't I didn't connect that as in like an artistic thing. Because it was always a side thing for him too. Uh-huh. Um so he had a regular job working at an ammonia plant and then photography would be like nights and weekends. Yeah. So so did you have any, any bug for sort of like that side of things also? Or No. Not at I all? Did, I never felt like it was something I was really good at. Um, not that I even really played with like the camera or anything, but I love to like model in front of the camera. <laughs> <laughs> Right. So I love when he was like testing out the lights and stuff and I got a chance to play model, uh, but never really wanted to do the like taking pictures myself. Yeah. So what was your thing as a kid? I was teaching. You were teaching? I was teaching. All right, tell me more. <laughs> So my parents could probably tell you about this time I got in big trouble because they had bought me a new bed, a new bed set. And I like carved the ABCs in the headboard. Wait, how old were you? (laughs) I must have been like between five and seven, right, to know my alphabets. But I was teaching my stuffed animals the alphabet and I carved it into the headboard. (laughs) Yeah, so I always wanted to be a teacher. That was my thing when I was younger. Wow. So even at the earliest age, you kind of knew that there was something in you that said, I, I want to help people learn. Yeah. Did that show up in other ways as you sort of moved along in, in the earlier parts of life? Um, probably in that I was like always like the older bossy cousin. <laughs> um, so my mom also has uh, six sisters and four brothers, yeah. which means I grew up in a huge family. I have lots of first cousins. We would always spend a lot of time like at my grandmother's house after school. So I was always kind of like tutoring people and like, you know, giving out directions about what we're going to play after school and that kind of thing. So I think it showed up in those ways, too. Yeah. So siblings, brothers, sisters, mm-hmm. two younger brothers. Mm. Yeah. Close. Yeah. Yeah. So my mother, I actually just told this story. Um, somebody I went on one of my Facebook lives asked me, how did I get my name? Um, and my mom named us all very simple names so that we wouldn't have trouble like spelling our names <laughs> when we got to kindergarten. So my name is Joy and my brother's names are Todd and Chad. So there's no like real confusion <laughs> right. about how, you know, how confused you can get in spelling your name. That's funny. We should have thought about that naming our daughter. Actually, our daughter's name is Jessie, but it's spelled the way that m- most boys would spell it J-E-S-S-E oh. so constantly she's like there's no I just just, <laughs> just <ye."> Jesse. <laughs> <laughs> um, yes. so you I mean, I mean it sounds like also you were you were a pretty devoted student mm-hmm. yes um, how does that show up I mean was it and, and I'm actually really curious when I when I sort of meet somebody who seems like was really academically driven in early age I'm always curious what's underneath that like what's mm-hmm. the driver for that yeah, I don't honestly know, but I always like had this competitive thing with myself. Like I always wanted to be the best. And I think it showed up in academics because I had no like sports talent or, mm. you know, artistic like we talked about. Um, so I think academics felt like it was my thing. Um, and I also had an older cousin. I guess he is about at least 10 years older than me who like went to school. And so when we went to college in New Orleans. And so when he would come home for like the holidays, he would like share these stories about what was happening on campus and that kind of thing. So I think in some ways it was like connected to my older cousins who had already gone off to college and me feeling like, okay, that's the thing that I'm going to do. And I want to be really good at it. Yeah. You also, I know I've heard you share a story <laughs> about, I guess it was coming to senior year in high school you worked really hard um, yes. to be the valedictorian. Yeah. And we're called in for um, a disconcerting conversation. Yes. Yeah. So that work actually started before senior year because, of course, you know, to be valedictorian, yeah. like you got to get your grades in order, like starting freshman year. And was that an aspiration? Like, Oh, yeah, were, absolutely. Were, yeah. <laughs> so I don't know if you heard this part of the story, but in Louisiana, and I don't know if they still have this, um, all of the valedictorians got to be on a commercial at the governor's house. And so they would like flash your picture in your high school. And I was like, I'm definitely going to be on that I commercial. I did not know that part of the story. <laughs> yes. I still have the videotape if my brother didn't like record Ninja Turtles or something over it. Um, so I definitely knew I wanted to be on the commercial. So I worked really hard, like starting ninth grade year, like to get the best grades possible because I needed to be on that commercial. Um, and so, yeah. So what happened is that. It was myself and then another white classmate who like were kind of neck and neck all throughout school. Um, Even and I still was like just mainly competitive with myself because I was like, I just got to be better than I was last time. Um, But she and I had very close uh, GPAs. 
And so we were in an English class together and we were called or I was called into um, the English professor, well, not professor, English teacher at the time. Um, He called me into his office after class one day and said, hey, you know, I know that you and her um, are kind of neck and neck with grades. And, you know, I've had conversations with her parents. And if she gets an A on the English final, then I will give her an A in the class and you guys will be tied for valedictorian. So, of course, I was hurt. I was, you know, devastated because I felt like that was very unfair. You know, she had clearly not worked as hard as I had. Um, and it felt like this was like an unfair advantage she was being given. Um, but at the time, didn't really know like what to do with that. And so my my memory of that is kind of foggy, like in terms of what happened afterwards. Like, I'm sure I talked to my mom and dad, and I, but I don't think we had like a meeting with the principal or anything like that. Um, now, it turns out she did not get an A on the final. So she did not end up being valedictorian. She was salutatorian. But still the fact that like that was on the table for her. Um, and and I think now, like, had the tables been turned, would that same offer have been given to me? Yeah. And I don't think so. Do you, I mean, in that moment, clearly, you know, it happened a long time ago, but it mm-hmm. stayed with you and stayed oh, with you for yeah. a reason. Do you feel like there were, that, that changed you or that changed your lens on the world or on, on, uh, tell me more about mm-hmm. that. Yeah, well, I think another part of like growing up in a very small southern town like I did, race was always an issue. Yeah. So even throughout like high school, we always had separate dances and prom. So like there would be a black kid's prom and a white kid's prom. Um, and so and it just kind of felt like life as it was, even though I knew something was inherently wrong about that. I think I just didn't know what to call it because all of the adults in our lives seemed like it was OK to do so. I think in some ways it felt like, oh, this is not a big deal, but something in me knew it was like an issue. So that had kind of just been a part of my history all along. But I think now I can very clearly look at that as this like the first time I was able to name like a white privilege kind of a thing that was happening there. Yeah. I mean, it's it. These conversations are really helpful for me mm-hmm. <laughs> because, like I said, I grew up in a suburb of New York City. I've lived in New York City for basically my entire life where... um and I think what's been happening in the country over the last couple of years is also just shining the light on so much of mm-hmm. uh, so much unfairness, so much privilege, so much different treatment. Um, but it's it's for me to even like I have no exposure to a world where um, in a small town there are separate events and separate mm-hmm. gatherings and separate school sanctions or like proms. Well, the thing was, is that the white kids one would be the offsite one. Okay. So it wasn't technically school sanctioned. It. it was like parent sanctioned. Like they would get together and rent like a local community center. And that's yeah. like the white kids prom where where that would be. But it was still accepted. Like this is just the way it is. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So when you head off to college, what you went to Xavier, right? Mm-hmm. Xavier, New what Orleans. were you studying there? Psychology. So you knew from the earliest time then that oh, yeah. that was your jam. Yeah. Why? Mm-hmm. What was what So I had actually taken a psychology class. Like we had some kind of, I don't know what it would be called in school now, but it was like we would call into like some number and like a teacher would be on the TV. So I don't know. It was like some tele-remote um, kind of class in psychology, which was I think was very advanced for where we are. Again, a very small country town. Um, and so I loved it from then. Like it just was fascinating to me and I am really fascinated by human behavior. Um, and so when I took psychology, I was like, oh, this is definitely my thing. So you were just in from the beginning. Mm-hmm. Was, there a, was there a particular part of it that really drew you in? So I thought that I really wanted to teach psychology. Um, uh, going back or, to the five and six years. Yes, car- exactly. Carving like, <laughs> the letters in the bad thing. Right, I right. thought that I would want to teach. So I went to, when I went to Xavier, I was originally a psych major and an education minor. Yeah. Um, and I didn't quite know what I was going to do with it, but I felt like it might have been teaching psychology. Um, but then I took my first like practicum kind of education thing where I had to go to an elementary school and like shadow a teacher and stuff. <laughs> I was like, oh, no, this is not my jam. (laughs) Although, of course, if I would have been teaching psychology, it would not have been elementary school. Um, But something about it just didn't feel like a fit for me. Like just the the structure, I think of it, like just didn't feel like it was actually the best fit for me to be like in a classroom. Yeah. But the actual sort of like diving into who we are and why we do what we do was still the deep fascination. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And that even got more intense. And I think most psych majors will tell you like when you get into like your abnormal psychology classes and that kind of thing, you're trying to like diagnose yourself and everybody in your life. Um, That even made it more intense for me. Right. It's like with each chapter, you're like, oh, I have a new thing. (laughs) 
It's right. Like, and these three friends are clearly like, you, <laughs> right. you need to deal with this problem right now. Exactly. It's exactly. like med students. Right, um, right. So as you're going as you're going through college, do you start to focus in on the idea then that you're you're looking at potentially a clinical practice or you want to go like how do things get clearer? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So we had internships and things so yeah. that you could kind of get exposed to different things. So I did um, one summer where I did a summer research program at Emory University in Atlanta, which is funny that I now live in Atlanta. Um, so I did the research thing and I was like, OK, this is cool, but I don't necessarily see myself doing this full time. But then one semester I did a um, clinical internship with someone at the YW. BCA, um, which had like a community counseling kind of thing. And so I was able to like actually sit in on some intake sessions and felt like, okay, this is definitely what I want to do. I want to do more of the practice side of psychology. Yeah. So as you're, you're diving into that, you're learning more about this and developing a, like a deep interest and passion and skill set around this thing. And at the same time, you've gone from this tiny little town in Louisiana to a, a, a pretty big substantial environment with mm -hmm. a lot more people, a lot of different people. How does that experience, I mean, and, and literally like on, on your way out of high school, you have this one experience where just front and center, the profound unfairness, mm -hmm. how does your experience then in Xavier evolve? Like how does, how does this larger, being in a larger population, studying something differently, being around a completely different group of people, mm -hmm. how does your, your experience and your thought on, on race, on culture, on equality evolve while you're at Xavier? I think um, so if you like know about like racial identity and like the formation of biracial identity, there is a stage in some of the models that talks about like being completely immersed in your own culture. And I feel like that's what Xavier did for me. So, of course, Xavier is the only black, um, historically black and Catholic university, which makes it unique. Um, but we were learning about things that I had never been exposed to. Now, some of it I had been exposed to because my older cousin, who I talked about earlier, had also gone to Xavier. Um, and so he would come home and tell me about like all of these things that we were learning in history that were completely false. And it was just so eye-opening. And so when I got to Xavier, I learned even more about that. So it really gave me an appreciation for like African-American history and culture um, in a way that I had not been exposed to before. Um, and then I think I had the language to explain like what was happening in terms of separate proms and this experience I had with the valedictorian issue. So I think I had language, the language I have to now develop like and talk about some of those things mm. came from Xavier. And then you go from there. So when you start to push through, because eventually you go, you get your master's and you mm -hmm. get your PhD. So, I mean, from what I know, the when you look at the profession of psychology, you know, clinical practice, my recollection, I'm sure you know the numbers a lot better than me, is that there's a healthy balance sort of between gender in terms mm -hmm. of practitioners. But when you look at the representation of people of color, mm -hmm. it's it's really, 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 really small. Right. Um so I'm assuming that that's also reflected in the advanced degree programs. Oh, absolutely. And this, so you go from Xavier then into sort of like, you know, like pursuing a PhD in a program, which I, I'm, I'm assuming, but you can tell me this is right. It's probably largely white. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it absolutely was. How does that pendulum swing then play into like your lens? Yeah. So I went from Xavier to Arkansas State. So it felt like I kind of like gradually ease myself and back into like a mainstream kind of thing yeah. out of being out of this, you know, completely black almost experience. Um, so I actually ended up at Arkansas State because I applied to clinical PhD programs right out of undergrad and didn't get accepted. Um, and so I was like, oh, what am I going to do with my life now? That also felt like a turning point for me because I feel like, you know, the academic like streak in me, that was the first time there had been any kind of disappointment. Uh, yeah. um, you know, so I'm, you know, this big strong... part of your identity Exactly, yeah. exactly. So I was like, oh crap, what am I going to do now? Um, and fortunately, someone who had graduated from Xavier before was the director of the rehabilitation counseling program at Arkansas State. And she had written a grant and needed students to come and like fulfill the grants. So I was like, oh, okay, why not? Like it'll be paid for. I get a stipend. I don't know anything about Jonesboro, Arkansas, but hey, I could do it for a year. Um, and it was an incredible experience and it was a very small program. Um, so even though it was majority white, like it still felt very like comfortable and, you know, like we were having great discussions in class and I felt, again, very taken care of, I think a lot because the director of the program was a Xavier alum. Yeah. So, you know, even though I was away from family, she always supported me, you know, the, my classmates and stuff were great. Um, so it felt like a very comfortable experience. But then I leave there and go to the University of Georgia. 
<laughs> for my PhD experience and was completely shocked. Um, I think I had been protected a lot from like the politics that are associated with higher education mm-hmm. and got completely slapped in the face with that at the University of Georgia. How so? I mean, what was what was your experience of this political change? Yeah, so it just felt like people were getting all these kinds of opportunities to like present on papers with professors or to attend like these national conferences. And it was like, how did y'all even find out about this? Like, is there a listserv somewhere that I'm not, you know, privy to? Um, And it was clear that it was just because certain students had certain relationships with professors who usually were white. um, And they would like, you know, allow them to be like second or third author on a paper or go and present at a conference. And of course, that stuff is completely important, you know, especially if you want to like be a professor or be a researcher. And it just felt like students of color did not have those same experiences. So I think those were some of the first times I realized like, okay, there's a lot of politics, a lot of unspoken rules that go on here that I really need to kind of be mindful of. Yeah. Um, and at the same time, it sounds like you're you're developing an awareness of, I mean, not only the, you know, like the education and and the skill set of clinical practice, but also the sort of like the cultural impact or the way that different cultures either reach out to or completely don't reach out to the field of psychology and therapy and the perception of it. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's like you're experiencing this within your academic context, but also it sounds like you're looking out at the world of psychology and therapy in general Mm -hmm. and saying like things are not the same for everybody and not just in the way the service is delivered, but in, in people's willingness or people's assumptions about what this is or isn't, their willingness to interact, to share with others. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, you know, my dissertation was actually on Black Graduate Student Association. So that really felt like a saving grace for me was getting involved in the Black Grad Student Association on campus. And I figured other people are probably having these same kinds of experiences. So my research was around finding other students at predominantly white institutions who were involved in Black grad student associations and whether that helped to mediate their experiences of depression and anxiety, um, which I found it was actually accurate. The research actually supported that, um, but also gave me information about like how incredibly stressed Black grad students are at predominantly white institutions. I mean, grad school is like incredibly stressful and anxiety provoking for lots of people, I think. I don't think anybody kind of just walks through grad school. Um, But I think especially for Black grad students at white campuses, it feels, you know, in some ways intolerable. And like you have all of these other stressors on top of just trying to get the work done. So what are some of the other stressors and how does that actually show up in their experience? Yeah, so I think some of the politics are are very surprising for people. Um, funding is very difficult. So we kind of touched on this a little bit, but, you know, it takes a lot of time to get a PhD, especially in a clinical practice kind of field, because you do undergrad, then likely you do a master's, then you do four years of a program. There's an internship, then there's usually like supervised hours even after you graduate. So you're never like really independently practicing for like maybe 10 plus years, Um, you know, so you think about like people who are able to support that, like there's a particular privilege that comes with being able to take time from the actual workforce or students who are in school working and doing this, you know, at the same time, which of course puts a stressor on your studies. Um, So finances were often an issue. Um, Also like the relationships people would have with families. Um, So kind of being like, maybe you're the one who made it. And what does that mean for going back home? You know, so are you still able to have some of those relationships with people who, you know, knew you from your small town? And what did that look like? I mean, tell me more about that part of it. Is it because then, are you, so is what you're saying, is then you potentially go back and you're, you either are different, you're viewed differently, and it actually, it pushes you away from Absolutely. People? Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, a lot of that, I think, was mediated for my family because I had already had cousins who had pursued master's degrees. Um, so I think a lot of that weight had been paid for me. But a lot of people, they are the first one in their family to get like a master's or a PhD. And so sometimes there's tension with, oh, you think you're better than everybody else or, you know, you were able to kind of get out. And so how do you still manage some of those situations with family who may not really understand what you're doing? A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? 
helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Good Life Project is sponsored by Lexus GX. So have you ever owned something that inspired you to just up your game? For me, it was this high-end mountain bike. I love the ultralight frame, the suspension, the precision gearing, and I realized it deserved to be ridden to its full potential. So I started training harder so I could experience the joy it could give back to me. And it paid off. That bike helped me discover just new levels of performance and straight up joy. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. Imagine tackling rugged landscapes with the available 33-inch all-terrain tires and multi-terrain select, then unwinding with the available front row massaging seats. This is a vehicle that inspires you to go further to live up to its full potential. So why settle? Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Good Life Project is sponsored by LinkedIn Ads. So as a business-to-business marketer, your needs are unique. B2B buying cycles are long and your customers face incredibly complex decisions. So isn't it time you had a marketing platform built specifically for you? LinkedIn Ads empowers marketers with solutions tailored for B2B. Imagine having direct access to a billion professionals, including 180 million senior executives and 10 million C-level leaders with LinkedIn's powerful targeting tools built for B2B, you can drive serious results. LinkedIn ads generated two to five times higher return on ad spend than other social platforms in the technology space. We've actually tapped the power of LinkedIn ads a number of times ourselves, and the campaigns have been really successful. If you're ready to revolutionize your B2B marketing, try LinkedIn ads with a $100 credit on your next campaign. Terms and conditions apply. Go to linkedin.com slash goodlifeproject to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash goodlifeproject or just click the link in the show notes. Terms and conditions apply. So you're, I mean, it's kind of interesting. You're, you're in school learning psychology and you're your dissertation focuses on um, the stresses and the experience. Did you find that people of color reached out to for counseling, um, for help, were um, both proactively looking for it and open to it on the same level of other people, or was it a completely different experience? Mm-hmm. That wasn't actually a part of my dissertation, okay. but after I graduated and started working in college counseling centers, yeah. that definitely was my experience, that the students of color and primarily black students would not reach out for services in, at the same rates as like other students would on campus. What do you feel is behind that? So there's, of course, a lot of stigma related to mental health, you know, in black community. So people not really understanding like what it is. A lot of us grow up with this idea of what goes on in your house stays in your house. And so the idea of talking to a stranger about like very personal information is like completely unheard of. You just don't do it. And I think there's also and there continues to be like this tension between therapy and religion and faith. Um, So, you know, a lot of people feel like, okay, maybe you just don't have a strong enough relationship with God and that's why you're struggling with mental health. So go pray about it as opposed to like, okay, can I strengthen my faith relationship and also go and talk to a therapist? So historically, there has been some tension there that I think has kept black people out of seeking therapy services. So is it is it more like there is like there's a pecking order of things that you go to Mm -hmm. to to help out with? Like, first, you just don't talk about it. Right. Then, you know, like you turn to either faith or whatever is really the tradition within your household or your community. Mm-hmm. Um, and then is, is I'm wondering, I guess, would it then be potentially even seen as a sign of having failed at the things that are supposed to work and even like weakness if you now have to go to a quote therapist or psychologist or Absolutely, especially for black women. I mean, there's this whole stereotype of like the strong black woman, right? That nothing can penetrate you, that you have everything together. You can manage your house and faith and all of those kinds of things. So if you have to reach out to somebody, then you have failed in your, you know, strong black womanness. Yeah. Were you, 
I mean, so you're seeing this as when you're actually afterwards on the counseling side. Did that surprise you at all? or? Um, I, I don't think I was surprised by it, but it was concerning to me um, because a lot of the places where I worked, I was also either the only like black psychologist or one of few. So it made me wonder like, oh, did people know this before? Like, is anybody else paying attention to the fact that like the black students are not coming in at the same rates? Um, and I had been incredibly supported like on every campus that I went, like to go and do a group and, you know, in the Multicultural Student Center or somewhere else, because students, in my experience, the Black students felt more comfortable, like, meeting where they already were congregating. Of course, they struggle with the same kinds of things that everybody else is struggling with on campus. But for these kinds of reasons, we're not necessarily going over to the counseling center. So, I mean, it's uh, there's so many things I'm curious about. <laughs> Part of it is, I mean, it's interesting you shared, like, okay, so yes, I think we're all most comfortable sort of, like, in the place that we feel comfortable. And mm-hmm. especially if we're going to be vulnerable. Right. Um, we want to do it in a place that is safe, mm-hmm. you know, and, and whatever the structure is, whatever the things that need to be. And sometimes that is the, literally the physical place mm-hmm. that we feel safe. But also part of, part of safety is, is the person who's leading this conversation or the person who are relying on, the person we are, quote, surrendering to mm-hmm. and trusting, um, are they safe? Right. And if then part of what you're sharing is most of the counselors at the center were white, how does that play into the feeling of safety and a feeling of willingness to actually seek help from somebody who is of a different race? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think for a lot of people, it felt very comfortable to have these conversations outside of the counseling center. Um, because, you know, like if you ran a group in the counseling center, like there was paperwork that needed to happen, like you were a part of the system, so to speak. But when we did groups outside, it was more like a support kind of discussion group. So it, there is no paperwork attached to it. So I think in some ways people felt like it was not pathologizing. It felt like, okay, we can just get together with these people who are trained professionals and we can have these kinds of conversations that are important to us. Now, of course, I am also helping them to understand like what kinds of things happen when you come over to the counseling center. So I think having a face for it and realizing like, oh, these are not like weird people over in the counseling center. Like she's cool to talk to. She can probably, you know, help me kind of get adjusted to talking with someone else. I mean, because the thing is, even if all of like the black students on campus wanted to see the black therapist, there would not be enough of us to go around. Um, So a part of I think my job also is one, helping my non-black colleagues to understand like these are some of the concerns that students are facing. Are you doing your own work so that when they come here, they are not further traumatized mm-hmm. by having a racist experience in therapy? And also explaining to the students like, yeah, I know it would be great maybe to talk with me. But one, I don't have experience in all of the things that you may be struggling with. And actually, one of my colleagues may be a better fit for you. So helping to kind of dispel some of those fears they have about talking with someone I think is also a part of like the outreach that was really important to me. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And and I guess you going there outside of the clinical setting first, it kind of normalizes it yes. first. It's like, I'm actually a regular person too. And <laughs> right. we can have a good conversation where it's right. just supportive. Exactly. Um, and it almost, it, it takes away the sort of like, well, this is quote official therapy. It's like, exactly. oh, well, this is just like, this is kind of part of what it's about, but just mm-hmm. a different setting. When you then go back to um, the counseling office and you have the conversation with your non-white colleagues, were they actually aware of the phenomenon that you had noticed? And then, and were they open to the idea of re-examining um, the nature of the way that they were interacting with people? Mm-hmm. I would say for the most part, people were, um, you know, because I think it's a special kind of personality that is attracted to like college student mental health yeah. um, because it's different than any other yeah. kind of practice. You know, it's like lots of people will talk about. Um, so I, for, I feel like most people were very supportive and wanted to find ways, but hadn't before like black women were on staff, hadn't been able to kind of get into the community because, you know, they were very close off to it. You know, like who are these people and why do they want to come talk to us? But I think once there were more black women on staff, then we were able to kind of create conversations that the campus really needed. So you say once there were more black women on staff, Mm -hmm. how does that actually happen? So I think it really, I think it would be difficult for me to go somewhere where there were no other black women on staff because that would make me think either this town is not attractive for black women, like it doesn't feel good to live here, 
or something about like this culture doesn't make it feel like black women want to be here. Um, so I would definitely be asking lots of questions to any place I was interviewing that didn't have black women on staff. But I think once you get one person there that can attest to like, OK, this feels like a comfortable place. I think you would like it here. You know, these are the kinds of things we can do on campus. Then it makes it easier for more people to go there. Um, so I think a lot of it is in like the recruitment and like the targeting and making sure that people are applying so that you can kind of get them to come and visit campus. Yeah. We're were you that first person anywhere that you had worked? I think I was at Georgia Southern, right? I think I was at Georgia Southern. What was that like? What made you say yes, given the fact that sort of like you you would be the first person? Mm-hmm. So that was my first job out of grad school. Ah, got it. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> and my goal had always been to like be in Atlanta. Yeah. And so this was like closer to Atlanta than where I was in, uh, where was I? I think I was in Wisconsin or somewhere before. Um, so I was like, okay, I can, I can do this. Right. right. No, I was in Virginia. There's enough good stuff in places where I say, all right. Let's, <laughs> right. Some of my yeah. really good friends were already in Atlanta. It was only like three hours away. So I was like, okay, I can do this and like keep mm. looking for something in Atlanta until something opens up. Yeah. Yeah. You also, you, you brought up the phrase, um, I'm, I'm probably not going to get it right. Um, vocational rehabilitation or rehabilitation mm-hmm. counseling. Mm-hmm. What is that? So it is related to helping people with disabilities get back into the workforce. Uh-huh. So what kinds of accommodations and things need to be put in place so that they can do their jobs to the best of their ability. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, with that experience... I'm curious what you took from that. Yeah, so it came in incredibly helpful. So after I graduated from my program with the master's degree, I actually worked for the state of Wisconsin with their vocational rehabilitation counseling program or department. And so I learned so much. And I had a lot of college students actually on my staff or on my caseload, like helping them get the accommodations they needed in place to do well in college. So it kind of came full circle because my last job before I started doing therapy for Black girls full time is that I I was the director of the Counseling and Disability Services Center at Clark Atlanta University. Mm -hmm. So I was the person in charge of like making sure their accommodations were in place and looking over records and those kinds of things um, on campus. So that information and the knowledge I had from that master's degree came in incredibly helpful. Yeah. And it's so interesting, too, because this is this is a different population who also very often is subject to tremendous stigma Mm -hmm. and to inequality and to exclusion. Right. Um, and so it's sort of like it's an interesting experience for you to to have in the early days of becoming like entering this profession saying, yes. huh, like these are the different ways that, that people are are pushed pushed out mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, for various different reasons that right. have nothing to do with anything they have they can control over. Exactly. Yeah. And all, a lot of the disabilities were psychiatric in nature. Uh-huh. Um, so things like needing extended time on tests or, you know, needing to have more frequent breaks or right. um, more excused absences, like a lot of that came from mental health issues. Um, and so it felt like it also a very early experience with like the kinds of ways that people are impacted in their lives related to mental health. Right. What makes you go from there then to say, okay, I'm going to move out into clinical practice and I am going to focus mm-hmm. my energy on introducing psychology and therapy to Black women? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it feels like what I had always been doing on these campuses. So, you know, now looking back, I can see a very clear, straight line yeah. to like how I ended up where I am today, um, but was not thinking that I would be here now. Um, But like I said, even as early as internship, I went to the director and said, hey, this is the kind of clinical practice I'm interested in. How can I run a group for Black women on campus? And so they would connect me with like the Office of Multicultural Students. So at Virginia Commonwealth, I'd ran the group with um, somebody who was not a therapist, but she was like the assistant director of multicultural services there. So we would stay late one afternoon and run a group for the Black women on campus that was incredibly popular. Um, And so then I left there and then started doing the same thing at the University of Georgia when I was on staff there and then continued when I got to Clark Atlanta University, which is, of course, another historically Black college and university. So it wasn't a need for like an actual group there, but the students still were very excited to like come and talk about like the kinds of things that had been concerning them. Right. So when you start um, Therapy for Black Girls, which is your your sort of like brand now, Mm -hmm. um, one of the big challenges that that, uh, I'm assuming you sort of address head on is 
this cultural association with what it means if you have to mm-hmm. um, have therapy or go to counseling right. or be involved with a psychologist. And now you're kind of like doing your own thing. So mm-hmm. it's sink or swim. Like you have to figure out how to survive. You're not under the umbrella of right. a big institution or something like that, where there's right. a, a captive group of people where you're in service of them. It's like, mm-hmm. you've got to build your own thing. Right. And it's hard enough to start, you know, for somebody else to start a practice mm-hmm. sort of like on their own. You choose to serve a community of people who deeply need what you have to offer. And at the same time, it's not just about being of service to them. It's about there's a whole educational burden of sort of like saying, okay, so let me show you why and how this is actually okay. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So were you sort of consciously stepping into that when you made that decision too? So even working in college counseling centers, like the college student life lends itself to lots of flexibility. So lots of people who work in college counseling centers have part-time practices. Um, So I had always had a part-time practice, even as early as being at the University of Georgia. So when I moved to Atlanta, having my practice on the side was something that I was already doing. Um, But it wasn't until... So the whole origin story for Therapy for Black Girls is that I heard, I, I watched the Black Girls Rock award show on BET. Um, And just, it was such an incredible experience. And I thought, is there a way I could create something like this for Black women related to mental health? And it it feels like it has kind of, in a lot of ways, become that. Um, So my whole goal was to like make it kind of cool. Like, how can I talk with people about these, you know, very like 10 syllable words and all of these diagnoses and stuff like that? How can I talk with people about this in a way that feels very relevant and accessible to them? Um, Because you mentioned earlier, like, oh, the idea of having to go to therapy. But I also want therapy to be something people want to do because I think it's a very unique experience to like go somewhere by yourself for an hour a week and just talk about yourself. Like, I don't think we often get those kinds of things. And so I also wanted people to understand that therapy is not something that you want to just think about, like when it's a crisis situation or if it's mandated, but how could you actually be improving your life by going to therapy for lots of different reasons? Yeah, and and it's not even that it's um, it's it's you, there's no shame associated with it, but actually it is effectively the way you're positioning it is it's a form of self care. Yes, and also self care is okay. Right, right, <laughs> and necessary. Right, we only have one us. How do you feel about that phrase self care? Because it's you know it's so much a part of the conversation right <laughs> yes. now. Yes, it's on Instagram on like it's a everywhere. million different posts. It's hashtag left and right. <laughs> What's your take on on just the phrase? Yeah, I feel like I need to like find some history of like how it has blown up (laughs) in the way that it has. Um, And of course, we were already talking about self-care because, you know, it's my training. Right. Um, But it feels like somewhere in the like last five years or so, it has become very much a buzzword. Um, And so, you know, I'm glad that people are paying more attention to it. But I think sometimes people get confused about like what kinds of things need to be classified as self-care. So you see lots about like manicures and pedicures and massages and, you know, all of those kinds of things. And all of that is great. But I don't want people to miss the like free things that self-care actually is, which is kind of just making sure that you're nourishing your mind, body, and spirit so that you can kind of continue to be functional. Like all of those small decisions you can be making to really be taking good care of yourself. Yeah, the little things. Right. Um, I know. And and also I think the idea of it not being a luxury, right. however, however, however you define it, you know, right. is no, no, this is actually... This is the way that most of us just are okay every day. Right. You know, in a world that's increasingly fraught and challenging yes. and anxiety provoking. Yes, yes. It feels like it's much more needed for sure. Yeah. How has the last few years in this in in this sort of like cultural moment mm-hmm. changed what you do and changed what you're seeing when people come to you and ask you questions and mm-hmm. look for advice? Yeah, there's a lot more anxiety. Um, and, you know, anxiety is always already like a top two. You know, it kind of goes back and forth between anxiety and depression in terms of like what's diagnosed most. Um, but there, there definitely is a lot more anxiety. Um, some that would meet like diagnoses cr- cr- criteria and some just kind of like, you know, normal everyday anxiety, I think that lots of people are walking around with. Um, I think, you know, the rise of like social media and stuff has made it much more difficult to kind of avoid the things that were already happening in the world that maybe we just didn't know about. 
Um, but as much as it also promotes awareness, it also makes it very difficult to kind of manage your mental health um, because at any moment you can open Twitter and find like that there's been another shooting somewhere or, you know, some other tragedy. And so I think people are just like really being overexposed, I think, in a lot of ways um, and are not kind of developing the skills to manage that in the, in the ways that we need to. So what do you, t- I mean, when people come to you and they, they share this with you, like, I'm, I'm feeling overwhelmed, I'm anxious, I'm like... I don't know what to do about it. I'm getting paralyzed. Mm-hmm. Um, what are some of the things that you share with them to mm-hmm. be okay? Yeah. So one, helping them to develop some limits around like their engagement with technology. You know, I know it's easy because we all have these phones in our pockets or, you know, they're readily accessible, um, but making sure they're putting things in place so that they are setting healthy boundaries with it. So that may mean kind of cutting it off, you know, several hours before bed or like turning notifications off, like all the things you need to do to protect your psyche from, you know, some of the uh, traumas that you might see when you open up Facebook. So I think having conversations about that has become much more a part of my work than it was like five years ago. Mm, yeah. You, um, so the way I became aware of you and your work is actually your podcast. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I started listening. This is awesome. Um, and you guys have to listen, by the way, Therapy <laughs> for Black Girls podcast. Uh, I know the podcast is sort of focused on Black women mm-hmm. as listeners. Mm-hmm. It feels to me as like a, a middle-aged white dude in New mm-hmm. York listening. <laughs> I was, I'm like taking notes uh-huh. listening to you. Um, but on two levels, like one is you've got just got great wisdom for anybody who's moving through stuff and mm-hmm. we all are, but also for me as somebody who is really just trying to better understand my role as a middle-aged white guy mm-hmm. in modern society and see and understand the things that people of color, um, are moving through that I've probably been pretty blind to for most of my life. Mm-hmm. It's been interesting because when I listen to your podcast, I hear not only great advice, but I also hear cultural experiences that I just, I I don't, I'm not in that conversation. Mm -hmm. I don't have that same conversation in my head. It's really, it's been fascinating for me being who I am Mm -hmm. to listen to it on a regular basis. Okay. Yeah. I think I was very shocked by how many like non-Black women were listening to the podcast. Because of course, again, it is very much for them. Like yeah. that is who I'm making the podcast for. But lots of like non-Black therapists will tell me they listen to and like get great information. Um, and, I, and I'm glad, like I feel like that's like a happy byproduct of the podcast that other people can also get really good information that may help them to have um, less traumatizing, again, experiences with people of color and Black women in particular in their therapy offices. So if it can help in that way, I'm glad to hear that too. Yeah. So it's interesting. So then your, your sort of like quote, primary listening audience is black women, but also it sounds like it's, you're really also looking to speak to therapists. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm not looking to speak to them. But they just, <laughs> yeah, they are just getting good yeah. information from it. Yeah. And I hadn't thought about that ahead of time. What was the, I mean, what was actually the initial incentive? So like there are, you know, a hundred different ways that you could be of service. Mm-hmm. Um, you chose to like one of the primary forms for you is media. Mm-hmm is hosting conversations, is sharing ideas, mm-hmm. sharing in the form of a podcast. Right. Why? So it started out as a blog. So Therapy for Black Girls actually started as a blog. Right. Um, but I was way less consistent with blogging than I am with podcasting. And I think I just was never able to get like the immediate feedback from my readers that I get from the podcast listeners. So, you know, um, podcast listeners are a very different breed of people, right? And, and even though lots of them, I'm sure, read blogs. But I think the intimacy of the medium really makes people feel like they want to talk back to you. Um, and so, you know, I was just getting so much feedback very early on from the podcast that it made it easy to kind of continue and it made it very clear that people needed this and that they like appreciated the information. Um, So it really has kind of just accidentally been that podcasting was the thing that connected to people because I already had said like I I already had blog pieces on the website that people just weren't, you know, grasping in the same ways. Good Life Project is sponsored by Lexus GX. So have you ever owned something that inspired you to just up your game? For me, it was this high-end mountain bike. I love the ultralight frame, the suspension, the precision gearing, and I realized it deserved to be ridden to its full potential. So I started training harder so I could experience the joy it could give back to me. And it paid off. That bike helped me discover just new levels of performance and straight up joy. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The 
the all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. Imagine tackling rugged landscapes with the available 33-inch all-terrain tires and multi-terrain select, then unwinding with the available front-row massaging seats. This is a vehicle that inspires you to go further to live up to its full potential. So why settle? Live up to the all-new Lexus GX. Luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Other than the um, the fact that you found that um, other professionals and people of all color were listening, were there any other really big surprises? I think just how many people listen yeah. has been incredible to me. I mean, you know, I think, and I, I still try to figure out like, okay, what's going to be the marketing plan and, you know, all of this stuff. But really, it has just spread by people telling other people like, hey, you should check this out. Or, you know, they love one particular episode and they're sharing it with everybody in their circles. You know, so it has just been an incredible word of mouth campaign, which, of course, is right. The best marketing right that you can get. Mm-hmm. Um, it has just been incredible. It's been tremendous. Yeah. One of the things that you've um, spoken about in various different ways also is we've touched on it a little bit is the idea of depression um, and depression in the context of sort of the cultural perception of a strong black woman Mm -hmm. and how those two things sometimes don't play well together. Mm -hmm. Talk to me more about this. Yeah. So I think, you know, for people who are, have either invested consciously or subconsciously in holding this idea of a strong black woman, sometimes they miss the signs of depression. So they're so busy trying to take care of other people, they don't realize like how low their own motivation is or that they're not interested in doing things that they used to do. Or, you know, all some of those signs of depression are very easily missed because you're so outward focused. And so if you're not paying attention to kind of what's going on in your body and your mind, then you miss some of those signs that could indicate like, hey, I'm in trouble here. You know, I probably need to go and talk with somebody about this. Yeah. You also, not too long ago, dropped an episode. I'm trying to remember the title of it. It was five minutes. I think it was your U.S. Open moment. Oh, yeah. That was several uh, episodes ago. Which was... Which <laughs> that was, was one of my booster sessions. <laughs> yeah. It, it was not a normal episode. It wasn't one of your regular sort of uh-huh. longer deep dives. And uh-huh. like, um, but it was about what happened, um, I guess, at the U.S. Open uh-huh. with Serena Williams. Right. Tell me a little bit more about that moment and also what you said and why you felt compelled to just basically turn on the mic and say, there's something I need to get out. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, so you have listened to the episode, so you know I'm big on pop culture. So I'm always paying attention to like, what are people talking about right now? And if there's a slant that I can take for the podcast, then I usually try to connect it. Um, So I just remember that moment. And, you know, Serena, I'm not a huge tennis fan, but I'm a huge Serena fan. Um, And so have followed her career and like just the ways that she has consistently been vilified in the media. And like, she can just never do anything right it feels like um so in this moment you know where she's kind of making her comeback after the baby and you know all of these things like it just felt like such complete frustration in a way that I think lots of black women were able to connect with like that you just never can get a break um and so you know that was a lot of conversation I saw online and that was when I shared this story about the valedictorian speech like what was the moment in your life where you realized no matter how amazing you are like nobody would give you anything 
And so I shared that speech and other people were able to connect with. Because I think, again, like a lot of Black women have that moment, like or the first memory of like when you knew that the world was not the same for you as it is for other people. Mm. When you share um, something like that, do you think about the way that you're putting it together and the potential response to it differently than one of the sort of more regularly scheduled, um, Mm. you know, like a longer, more prescriptive Mm -hmm. type of offerings? Yeah. I don't necessarily think about it more, but I do think in hindsight, those are some of the ones people like the most. Um, Because again, I think when I'm just like asking questions of another therapist or I'm talking about like whatever the topic is, people don't necessarily get to know me as much, but on those shorter episodes, when I'm connecting it to more of my experience, then they get to know me more. Um, So, you know, even though they're hearing my voice every week, I'm not necessarily sharing a lot about who I am and what's going on with me. Um, And so I think people really like those episodes where they can connect to like, who is Dr. Joy behind the mic? Yeah. I mean, it's more like you said, you do a lot of interviewing of other people, sharing other people's voices. Mm -hmm. It's, it's like your moment to say like, okay, this is what's going on inside of my head. (laughs) Yeah. Um, as you become an increasingly public person, mm-hmm. how does that land with you being that person and being both having a platform and a voice and large numbers of people now listening to you, but also, um, you know, along with your ability to actually share what's on your mind is the ability for other people to share what they think about you and what you're saying as well. Mm-hmm. Does that, are you okay with that? Um, like, how do you navigate that? Yeah. So that's something I feel like I'm like learning to navigate, <laughs> um, you know, because I think because I have become more public and, you know, the podcast is more popular now, um, I definitely am getting more like critiques in a way that don't feel like fair critiques or helpful critiques. Like, you know, people have different opinions and that feels fine, but people will sometimes send me like nasty emails, which feels very, you know, off-putting and like... I think always causes me to take a step back, like, okay, what's going on here? Um, And I think because of my clinical training, I'm able to kind of quickly see Mm -hmm. this is likely more about them or something they have going on than it is about me, but it's still off-putting, you know, because I think I feel like I'm trying to do really good work for people and, you know, be of service, use my skills and knowledge to help other people. So I think it always feels like a slap in the face when I get some of those emails. But again, my clinical training, I think, helps me to kind of make sure that I'm putting that back on other people. People, but I don't know how that will increase as I become more public. I would imagine it gets more, you know, bigger and bigger. Um, so I don't I honestly know like how I'm going to deal with it. Yeah. I mean, it's an interesting thing as your audience, you know, like there will be a time where you're probably, you're talking to 10 times the number of people you're talking to now mm-hmm. and 10 times the number of people, <laughs> a percentage of that will feel both the entitlement and, and the need to want to share what's on their mind. Right about your thoughts and you. I think it's such a, I'm so curious how different people dance with that, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, and also how, how culture and, and how race and how ethnic backgrounds play into Mm. both the way you step into that role and the way that people choose to respond to you, because Mm -hmm. it's got to be different. Mm -hmm. Like, Like they're not, they're probably, I can't imagine somebody, you know, like every single person saying, I'm going to respond the exact same way to everybody, no matter what. Right. Of course. Of course. Yeah. I mean, I definitely have had some attacks. Um, You know, again, my stuff is made for Black women. And so overwhelmingly, Black women have been incredibly supportive of me. Um, But, you know, the the directory for therapists has gotten lots of press as well as the podcast. And so sometimes I will get comments from like non-Black people about like, well, why therapy for Black girls? Like, what about white girls? Or what about all of these other kinds of things? And that I choose to not even engage with because it feels like that's not a good use of my energy. Um, So, but again, like you're saying, as the, you know, popularity increases, there will be maybe 10 times more of that. And am I always going to be able to ignore that? I don't know. You know, I mean, so some of it definitely has had a racial slant to it, but some of it has not been like a race kind of thing. It's more of like a, oh, you know, who are you? You're annoying kind of thing. <laughs> <laughs> it's a typical internet troll type right. of stuff. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's why I never read the comments on YouTube. Right. You get it's just always comments. a really bad, bad place to, to, to be. But you know, that has been really difficult for me too, because a part of what's really important to me is to make sure I'm very connected to my community. Yeah. Like it's how I make sure I'm giving them content that they want to hear. I'm constantly soliciting their feedback. And so some of that requires me to read comments because I'm wanting to be in community with them. Um, but of course, then every now and then you will run against something that's like, you know, not community nice behavior and, you know, you, you can't help but read it. 
Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. As as you're saying that, what just popped into my head was that um, in, a, in a past life, the majority of what I put into the world was as a blogger, you know, mm-hmm. um, writing books and then, but really spending years as a blogger, putting out a lot of stuff. And in the early days of blogging, you know, we were all really excited when the early platforms came out and you actually could add comments. Right. And it was a conversation. And then you started realizing there were more and more comments. And then you started realizing, <laughs> oh, I don't like some of these comments. <laughs> and people are coming to my house and right. attacking me in my front yard. Right. And then you have like the decision, am I just going to let it hang out there? Mm-hmm. Am I going to delete it? Am I going to censor it? Am I going to respond to it? Am I going to let my community respond to it? And then there was a moment where... I saw a whole bunch of my colleagues, early bloggers with you know fairly significant followings, all begin to one by one turn off comments on their mm. blogs because they got to a point where the volume mm-hmm. of pushback, even though maybe it was still 10 to 1 good right. versus bad, but still the volume of the negative became, mm-hmm. they, they just, it became so distracting, so disconcerting that they were like, you know what, I just can't handle this. Yeah. I just I don't want to handle right. this. You know, if you want if you have something to say, that's awesome. You now have 10 different platforms and profiles that you own where you can let loose. Right. But not in my backyard. Yes. And they just start turning it off. And it's interesting because in podcasting, like we don't have comment sections mm-hmm. in the show notes on the listening <laughs> apps, right? Right. So people are already they're they're sharing comments, but they're generally doing it across all their own platforms mm-hmm. and profiles. Mm-hmm. Um so um yeah, I mean it I, I, th- I think we're 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 not at the point, but it, my sense is that um, you know, a lot of us are sort of exploring how how to navigate this, especially mm-hmm. because you, you put strong opinions into the world, right. like I do. I think we all do because it's kind of not worth doing if you don't do right. that, right? You know, um, which means you're going to provoke reactions. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so, wearing while we're still on this, um, because you do have this brilliant clinical background too, and other people whether they are podcasters or just people with, you know, like who are active mm-hmm. um, online and sharing ideas, they're getting trolled, they're getting, they're getting pushed back, they're getting criticized, or maybe even just in their personal lives. Mm-hmm. Um, what are one of the two sort of like most effective things that you do that maybe other people could do also mm-hmm. to handle a level of increasing criticism without crumbling? Mm-hmm. I hired people. So, you know, because community yeah. is really important to me, I still want to have a community, but I don't want to be the one who is like the first line person. So now I have a team of community managers who like manages the comment section and my Facebook group and all of those things, which has helped incredibly. Um, and I also have a virtual assistant who like manages my email. So, you know, by the time it gets to me, it is like either really, really washed down or not at all. Right. Like they will just take care of it for me. Um, Um, Because, you know, because the content is what is most important to me, like making sure people get good information. I feel like dealing with that stuff really was focused, taking away too much of my energy and focus. And I feel like I can't keep showing up in the ways that I want to for the podcast and then my weekly videos and all of those things if I'm taking too much energy and focus to deal with that other stuff. So community is important to me, but I don't feel like I have to be the one managing any of it anymore. So if you can find even, you know, if you can hire people, great, but also volunteering. Like podcast listeners really love to like want to be a part of something. And so you will likely even be able to find volunteers who'd be willing to help you manage a community if you needed to. Yeah, I love that. We actually take a similar approach. Mm -hmm. Um, because I'm sensitive too. And I'm like, if I saw every comment coming in, good right. or bad, I would spend my entire day just being like, you know, like engaging right. with it. Um, right. um, and sort of like swinging violently from back right. and forth. It's too much. And I just want to be able to actually do the thing I'm here to do, which is create um, and put ideas into the world. Right. You mentioned a directory, which I think is really important um, and interesting to talk about too. So part of what you did, you, you know, you have a very specific offering. You have your podcast, you're speaking to a particular person. And at the same time, you decided at some point, I need to put together a directory. Mm -hmm. Um, What was the genesis of that and Mm -hmm. what's it about? Yeah, so it's funny because it didn't come up because I needed to. It's just something (laughs) felt like I had to. Um, So again, because I spent lots of time like in social media, kind of engaging with people, I kept seeing this commentary around like, oh, I really like to find like a great therapist, like who has a good therapist, that kind of thing. And so in December of... 
2017, I believe, I or 2016, I put out a call that said, hey, if you are a Black woman who's had a great therapist, send me their information. I will compile it all into like a little database and like we'll just put it up on the website for people to find people. Um, and so by the end of December, I had like 90 therapists already. Um, most of them were nominated and some people were like, oh, this looks really cool. Let me add my practice to it. Um, and so it kind of felt like something that happened organically just because I kept seeing conversations around it. Right. And have you found that most of the therapists are also either either black women or women of color or people of color? Mm-hmm. Yeah, by and large. So now there are over 1,200 therapists oh, wow. in the directory. So what started as 90 is now 1,200. Yeah. Um, and most of them are overwhelmingly black women. Right. Of of the ones that aren't, mm-hmm. um, is that, I, I'm, I'm curious, you know, like a sort of a tiny, tiny percentage of them are not. Mm-hmm. Um, how do they end up there? Mm-hmm. Is it just because women of color, black women um, mm-hmm. are saying like this person, I'm, I guess maybe the other question is if everybody's nominating, do you get people saying like, this is my therapist, they're fantastic. Mm-hmm. They really understand me, my story, like where I come from, mm-hmm. my unique concerns, especially as a woman of color. And they're white. Yeah. So actually, it's not a nomination thing anymore. Okay. So now you can just list your practice Got as it. a therapist. Um, but a lot of therapists who were originally nominated were not black women. So a lot of, you know, I mean, again, like there are just not enough black therapists to go around for everybody who would want one. And so lot, that means lots of people are working with non-black therapists. And people were having fantastic experiences with people who were not other black women and they wanted to nominate their therapist. And they would even say that like, hey, this is not a black woman, but this person has been amazing and I love them. Um, so of course I would add that. So they, anybody has the option to join the directory. It just has so happened that most of the people who are listed are black women. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So when you sort of look at what you've created now, you've got a media brand, you've got a service brand, you've got a directory, you've got a community, which you mentioned, which mm-hmm. happens online. When you look to the future about what you want to create and where you want to go mm-hmm. with, with this, do you have a clear sense of what that looks like? Or are you just kind of um, more open to mm-hmm. what it needs to be. <laughs> I feel like I'm very open, but my community has been very clear in that they want more in real life events. Uh. <laughs> they want an opportunity to come together. Um, they've been asking for some kind of retreat or something. So I feel like that will be a part of what happens like in the very near future. Is that something you want to do just on a personal fulfillment level? Yeah. I feel like I want to like see these people in real life who yeah. have been like so incredibly supportive. Um, but I feel like I need to find people to do that because like event management and planning does not feel like a skill for me. So I feel like I also want to find like the right people who can bring to life like this vision. Because of course, if I'm going to do it, I want it to be something that like really feels like a therapy for black girls event. And I wanted to have the feel of like, oh, we're just hanging around, like listening to the podcast in some way. So I wanted to have a certain feel that's still very consistent with the brand. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're sitting here in the context of this container good life project. If mm-hmm. I offer up the phrase to live a good life, what comes up? To be connected. To be connected to others who you love. Mm. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much for listening. And thanks also to our fantastic sponsors who help make this show possible. You can check them out in the links we have included in today's show notes. And while you're at it, if you've ever asked yourself, what should I do with my life? We have created a really cool online assessment that will help you discover the source code for the work that you're here to do. You can find it at sparkatype.com. That's S P A R K E. T-Y-P-E.com or just click the link in the show notes. And of course, if you haven't already done so, be sure to click on the subscribe button in your listening app so you never miss an episode. And then share, share the love. If there's something that you've heard in this episode that you would love to turn into a conversation, share it with people and have that conversation. Because when ideas become conversations that lead to action, that's when real change takes hold. See you next time.